Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Your food is a symptom of the problem. The problem is the fact that we view ourselves in such a dominant position that we can so arbitrarily tyrannize and harm others just because of our physical and intellectual dominance. That's the issue, that we view ourselves in such a, a pinnacle of, of existence so arrogantly that anyone beneath us all of a sudden isn't granted the right just to their own body. The issue of animal exploitation is such a wide-ranging issue that affects every single living being on this planet. We're all gonna suffer the consequences of destroying our land, you know, destroying soils, destroying our air and our environment. Everyone suffers as a consequence of this, and therefore we have to do something about it. Think about it. That's Ed Winters, or Earthling Ed, and this is the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey friends, great to be back here with you again. I hope that you've been keeping well. If you're a first timer, thank you so much for joining us. We're all glad that you're here. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Today we are going to skip any form of preamble. Yes, we are going to jump straight into things. I hope that sounds good. If you are a regular listener, you will be well aware that most of the time on this show I speak about how our food choices affect our health and the planet. But with that said, I do think it's also important to consider how these choices of ours affect our animal friends who we share this planet with. To help us explore this today, we hear from Ed Winters, or Earthling Ed. For those who are familiar with him, I was fortunate enough to catch up with Ed in Los Angeles a few weeks ago and record this conversation. Other than being a really good bloke very humble and gracious. Ed is a highly prominent vegan educator and content creator and is the soon-to-be author of his new book, This is Vegan Propaganda and Other Lies the Meat Industry Tells You, which you can find a link to in the show notes along with links to Ed's various social media accounts. The thing that I really, really respect about the way that Ed goes about his advocacy is his calm and sound approach. When being challenged, as he often is, he has an incredible ability, it is incredible, to stay unfazed and dialed into logic and reason over emotion. Whether you're vegan or not, I can almost guarantee you'll find this episode thought-provoking. You'll hear about Ed's personal journey, navigating his own food choices, aspects of animal agriculture that many of us are unaware of or have been unaware of, myself included, and how Ed responds to common questions that I throw at him. Really, this could have easily been a five-hour discussion, so please do consider this part one of what I hope is an open conversation. With that said, this is Ed Winters. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll catch you on the other side. 
Earthling Ed, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Simon. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm grateful you could make time for me in, in your busy schedule as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Of all places, we've overlapped in uh, in Los Angeles, neither of our home Certainly cities. Not. But uh, yeah, I'm glad that we were able to make it happen, and always nice to to do it in person rather than over the internet. Agreed. It makes a makes a, a big difference. So I'm glad we could make it work, and looking forward to all the things we're going to discuss. So new book, This is Vegan Propaganda and Other Lies the Meat Industry Won't Tell You. I had to read that headline twice, but when I got it and really, uh, I can tell you put a lot of thought into that. I imagine with Penguin or with your team, there were a few whiteboard sessions trying to trying to land a, a name that was going to work. Honestly, the title was one of the most... Um, it was one of the hardest aspects of it in many ways. We went through so many different variations of titles, uh, different kind of ideas and, and, and themes behind it. And I made a video and it was talking about seaspiracy. And I'd used the word vegan propaganda in the video. And one of the, the people in the Penguin team had seen it and said, oh, I'd love, you know, maybe we could do something about this propaganda word that, you know, a lot of people use about veganism. I was like, you know, I really like that idea. I know like farmers will tell me, all the time, you know, stop spreading vegan propaganda. And I think it's so strange that we, we're labeling, you know, science or we're labeling something that, you know, is pretty conclusive as being propaganda. And I thought if I could riff on that little bit and, and almost kind of reclaim that and, and kind of use it in a almost tongue-in-cheek way, it'd be quite a, a nice way of creating a title. Yeah, it's, you know, when you read it a second time and, and you see the word other, then it drops, the, the message lands. And I do think on shelf, it's really is going to pop and it's going to to grab people's attention. So I think you've done a great job there. Thank you. I've watched your work for a number of years and I've really been in awe with the way that you go about things. I think you have a very calm presence. You're very eloquent and very intelligent, uh, clearly. And I think that allows you to have really enormous impact with your advocacy. And I know you're you're currently here in Los Angeles, probably for a few things. But one of yeah. the things I've seen you've been doing, which I thought was a, a very neat part of your advocacy, is these conversations you've been having with students at universities. Yeah, I, I'm curious as to what the sort of intent is there. Whether you're going there to learn and sort of fine tune your message, or you're going there to better understand people, or to try and change. Uh, people's minds and also, you know, how you found that so far? That's a yeah, really good question. Um, and firstly, yeah, thank you for your kind words. I do appreciate it very much. And part of me being here is America is a very unique place for many reasons, right? And I find that in America, I'm able to have uh, the kinds of conversations that I can't have in Europe. I mean, I've done this kind of debate tabling at universities and, you know, across the UK and also in other places in Europe. But I think by and large, people are a little bit more reserved in, in, in Britain and across Europe in general. But in America, people have this kind of culture of um, being opinionated, of being happy to discuss their opinions. People aren't afraid of wearing their identities a little bit more on their sleeves here. And so I find that having these conversations at US universities does a number of things. Firstly, I think it makes you know good content. I think these people are quite engaging most of the time. But secondly, it pushes me to be more confident, I think. And it pushes me to be a better debater in these situations because I'm often going up against people who um, are a lot more comfortable having these kinds of conversations and are not afraid of voicing their opinions, even though sometimes I listen to their excuses or I listen to the way they're presenting their ideas. And I think, 
this is kind of really left field. You know, this is kind of some, something that I would never want to proclaim, even if I did feel this way, you know, this kind of apathy, this kind of lack of empathy for animals. But people here are a lot more open to just saying how they feel. And I think that there's a unique opportunity here to discuss the ethical implications of veganism, because I think that's another thing that's lacking here. You know, there's a lot about, there's a lot of vegan foods. There's a lot of awareness about technology around plant-based innovation. But I, I find that the ethical side of it often lacks here more than it does maybe in Australia as well, where I know it's a big, big topic of conversation about farming and the animals, which is something I don't think is the same here, maybe. Walk me through and, and the listeners through what this looks like. Yeah. Because I'm interested in the practical side of this as well. You have a table, you have a sign that essentially says... Uh, I, I say veganism is a moral obligation, change my mind. is like something like that, yeah. Right. So you, you sort of go into the universities and set up, sit down, and you just wait for someone to come over. Pretty much, pretty much. So yeah, it, it can be a little bit of a waiting game at the beginning. I, as, you, as you rightfully say, I have a table, a couple of chairs, a table banner with a, a message such as, yeah, veganism is a moral obligation, or, you know, why aren't you vegan yet? And try and invite people to sit down and, and talk with me. And I think what I like about that is people who are sitting down know exactly what the topic of discussion is. And I like that it kind of levels the playing field straight away that the person who's sitting down knows exactly what we're going to talk about. And, you know, hopefully they have thought about it before or maybe, you know, in a conversation before about this very issue. So I have this banner, yeah, veganism is a moral obligation or something, something similar. And I wait. And what I normally find is you get people walking past and they'll look at it and you get different reactions. Sometimes people will kind of shake their head and annoyance. Sometimes people will stop. I can sometimes hear groups talking to each other about it as they start to walk past. And then almost always you start to get the first person who, who looks at it, thinks about it, comes and sits down. And I find it's kind of like a domino effect after that, where it's kind of like that um, it becomes normalized to the people around that this is an acceptable thing to do. And people can see the conversations we're having. They see they're very, you know, courteous. You know, they might be challenging, but we're polite, you know, with each other when we're debating. And then I normally find that people will kind of start to line up a little bit and will want to go next because they'll listen to the arguments the person's using. They'll think, well, I could do better than that. And so it's kind of like they big themselves they up. They want to add on to it. Exactly. They're <laughs> like, oh, well, the vegan didn't answer this. So they yeah. sit down and they say something about lions eating gazelles or something. And what I always kind of bring to smile to my face, and it's, it's not really fair for me to say it, but it's like when they say these things, it's like their eyes light up. Mm, Sometimes like, I got you. Yeah, like, oh, you bet you've never answered this one before. <laughs> yeah, and but like, you know I'm, what? I've seen your videos. You seem to always have a, a good answer. <laughs> so hopefully I so. Think you, I think you've, you've done your fair share of these and, of course, have done your homework. So, yeah. but, but that's interesting because then it sort of ends up being you debating multiple minds mm -hmm. when they're, they're kind of sort of adding, adding on to each other. Yeah. How do you uh, manage in these debates, these conversations where yeah, two people have a very different view of something, how do you manage to stay so calm and so level-headed? I think it's a um, practice, you know, firstly. I think fundamentally we need to practice at these things because, I mean, when I first started having conversations, I was nowhere near as patient and, and understanding as I am now. And I think the more that I practice these conversations, the easier that became. But it also came from research as well. And I think at the beginning, and I could still, I still find this happens as well now. When someone says something that I don't know how to respond to, I, I start. You can feel frustrated, and it's kind of like a frustration at yourself more than at the person. 
And I remember at the beginning when people would say things and I wasn't really that experienced or that confident, I would start to get a little bit more irritated. You think I should know that? Yeah, it's kind of like, why, this is silly, like this, you know, and, and in the back of your head, you're going, because I can't respond to this, this person's going to leave the conversation feeling justified in harming animals. So there's this extra pressure on you to, to always have a response. And so the, the more that I've done it and the, the more I've got used to responding to a, you know, a broad range of arguments, the easier it's become to not get irritated, not get frustrated. And internally, I can, you know, I sometimes think to myself, like, what, what are we talking about? You know, what's happening here? But I think ultimately, if my objective in these conversations is to firstly, you know, get good content, which inspires people who watch it, but secondly, to have an impression and an impact on that person I'm speaking to, then I have to be hyper vigilant of how I come across because you know, effective conversations isn't just about what we say, it's how we say it, it's how we present our ideas, it's the language that we use, it's the body language that we use, it's a whole package. So when we start to, you know, have kind of more aggressive body language or use more accusatory terms and phrases, we might be saying the right thing, but the actual presentation of that can impact how people receive it. So just a bit of accountability helps me, certainly. Yeah, and I imagine that even if you don't change someone's mind, if you leave them feeling relatively good about the interaction, that's a that's a seed that has definitely been planted. Absolutely right. I mean, this is the a huge part of the problem with veganism is the optics of vegans. Um, and I feel like my job in these debates as well is to provide good optics to vegans, you know, because I get a lot of people that stand around and watch and they have a, you know, everyone has an impression of what a vegan is. And especially a vegan activist or someone who's like, you know, proudly speaking about veganism, we have this, you know, very built up impression of what that looks like. And for most people, that's kind of a negative connotation of someone being kind of maybe aggressive or rude or confrontational. And so I think for me, part of the the way I go about this is trying to challenge those preconceived notions of what being a vegan is, because it's very easy for someone to dismiss an idea because they don't like the person who's presenting that idea. And like dismissing the the messenger is a great way of not dealing with the message. But if you can build up a bit of rapport with the person. And so when they first sit down, I spend the first couple of minutes just having a conversation with them, not about veganism. You know, as my camera operator is set up the cameras and we're doing mic checks, you know, I'll ask them, you know, where, where do you, you know, do you live in the area or, you know, you're traveling? What do you study? You know, do you like it? What year are you in? And just try and build up a bit of a rapport because that rapport builds trust. And if the person feels that they can trust me, they're going to be more open with me. With that in mind and your experience in these conversations and an understanding of, of mindset and relationships and the importance of connection, how do you feel about the more aggressive, charged kind of approach to, to animal advocacy? Is there a place for that? Or do you think that's something that uh, the community needs to, to work on and, and sort of tweak a little bit? I think that, we are up against a huge system that is, you know, multifaceted. You know, it has many, many heads, this beast of a system that we're up against. And it's never going to be that one approach or one style of activism is going to, you know, decapitate every head of this beast that we want to take down. So I think that it, it will ultimately require different tactics, different, different ways of going about it for different situations. But I always think that we have to be mindful of the optics and mindful of how we're going to be perceived because you know, not all publicity is good publicity. That's definitely not the case. So we have to just be mindful when we go into these situations, where we go into these environments. You know, how am I going to come across? How are people going to? How are people going to leave feeling about me? And not just the message itself. So yeah, I think that there's a place for almost you know for most things. You know, nonviolent, of course, there's a place for most things. But at the same time, we have to be hyper vigilant of of what 
of how we're going to be, you know, perceived. And for what I do, the activism that I do, I think that that's, you know, I couldn't do that in a more aggressive way because I don't think that would, that would work for me at least. But there are, you know, often things that we do have to do in a little bit more confrontational manner, I think. So in your conversations at the universities and, and just in general, do you think most people are are simply unconscious of the the impact that their choices are are having their food choices or you know buying uh, leather bags for example or are they willfully ignoring the impact that those actions are having i think that it's a mixture i think that a lot of people are unconscious but i also think that now there's less of an unconscious aspect to it and more, as, as you rightfully say, a willful ignorance about it. Most people that I sit down to are very happy to tell me that factory farming is terrible, more than happy to tell me that, because that's not a particularly controversial thing to say, even though they support factory farming, which is kind of the irony there. But I think the fact that people will, will openly tell me that already shows to them that there is something profoundly wrong with causing needless suffering to animals. And so I think that most of the time people are having some sort of willful ignorance about what they're supporting, um, what they're paying for. I mean, for instance, there was a person I was speaking to just a couple of weeks ago, and they said to me um, that they only buy kind of grass-fed, you know, pasture-raised beef. Mm-hmm. That's a common one. Common, common, right? And um, I always wonder, though, is that is, are you sure? Is it always exactly? It, even though this is obviously a, a, a broader conversation to be had here, even just on that point, I think hmm, is it always a hundred percent organic grass-fed? That's the thing. Well, that's what I actually asked him. I said, you know, do you know where the beef? He's like, no, I don't know. I just trust. And I said, do you, what, what are you trusting? And he said, well, I'm going to a steakhouse tonight with some friends for a birthday thing. And I was like, and do you think at the steakhouse they're going to have this high welfare, pasture-raised, organic beef that's slaughtered in this you know, mythical manner where the animal doesn't suffer and it's all amazing and ethical? And he was just kind of like, well, yeah, are you telling me that the steakhouse wouldn't do that? And I was like, you have no idea what you're, what, what you're supporting. And I think that's part of the problem. People are willfully ignorant. Um, and I think they are, as you say, unconscious in many ways. But... Ultimately, what I find reassuring about these conversations is that most people agree on the same broad points, that reducing animal suffering is the, is the morally right thing to do, that all systems of farming do cause suffering. You know, those are the two kind of main points that I try and get people to admit to now, because as soon as we recognize that by exploiting an animal, we're causing suffering and we're, we know we're you know, removing um, autonomy, as soon as we recognize that, then that leads us to veganism by default, because that's the only option that we have that takes this reduction of suffering and, and uh, you know, exploitation to its fullest extent. Okay, so we need to unpack this. If, if most people are against animal cruelty, and what I want to understand is how then most of us develop our attitudes towards the various animals that we eat as food. And I, I think your own personal story is perhaps a good on-ramp here. So I know that you you grew up in a household uh, where meat was very much a, a regular part of, of your diet. And in fact, you had a particular view about vegetarians. Do you want to start here and, and perhaps share that and that'll help us unpack this a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah, as you rightfully say, Simon, I was raised in a family where you know, eating meat was an everyday occurrence. Dairy as well was a big part of our diets. 
And we used to think that vegetarians were strange people. We didn't understand them. I mean, we didn't know what a vegan was when I was younger. I don't think many people did. So this notion of veganism wasn't something we could have an opinion on because we didn't know about it. But vegetarianism was this kind of strange thing. We'd make jokes about it around the dinner table and we'd laugh about it. And I remember being about maybe 11 or 12 years old and I was in an English literature class and we were studying a book and in the book was a vegetarian character. And for some reason, my teacher said to me, what do you think about being vegetarian? And I put my hand up and she said, yes, Edward. And I said, all vegetarians are pale, weak, and skinny, right? And where, do we, where do you think you got that from? from? It must be from my family, from my parents. It's the only, it's the only way that I can, I can perceive it to have come from at that age. Although, of course, we're heavily influenced by media as well. And so there's a good chance that maybe I saw it in films, maybe I saw it in TV shows. You know, when we hear this information, especially at a young age, we're so impressionable. Our brains are so malleable. And so it kind of, you know, this kind of attitude stems back to a very much important aspect of our evolution. You know, when we're younger and, you know, the stage that humans are born is when we're very underdeveloped compared to many animals in the wild. And so we're particularly impressionable because we need to be to be able to grow to survive. And so when we were, you know, back in hunter-gatherer days, the information we were told by our communities was very important because it was, you know, don't eat this berry, don't interact with this animal, don't touch the fire, these kind of very important aspects for our survival. So we were kind of conditioned almost to take this information and, and apply it very literally and seriously. Like a sponge. Like a sponge, exactly right. So in the modern day context, whilst we have important information that our parents give us, when societies and, and our parents give us information that's wrong, such as we need meat for protein or you know steak for iron, whatever it might be, that becomes just as ingrained as the important information that we do need for survival. And so it becomes just something that we accept as being true rather than questioning it. And I'd never questioned it. So in the classroom, when I said that, I just said what I thought was true rather than what I'd been, you know, rather than what I'd researched. Obviously at that age, I'm not going to research things, but I was regurgitating information I'd already been told. And there was a vegetarian girl in my class. And I remember looking at her because I thought she was going to validate me, the irony. I thought she was going to look at me and agree with me. But I looked at her and she was really angry at me. You know, it's like she was furious. Like I, you know, I offended her, which obviously I would have done. I'd insulted her. And I remember just thinking, oh, that's strange, you know, why wouldn't she agree with me? Yeah, weird. So that was when I was about 11 or 12. And then I kind of went to, you. everything was kind of stayed the same. I mean, actually, I remember having this experience where I was eating a beef casserole. I was quite fussy when I was a kid. Things like chicken drumsticks, I didn't really like because I didn't like the bones. You know, I always wanted boneless chicken. And then I remember having this beef casserole once that my family had cooked. And there was like a vein running through one of the, the chunks of the cow. And I remember being absolutely disgusted by this. Like, I couldn't believe there was a vein. It really put me off. It was gristly and chewy, and I thought it was the most disgusting thing. And I never liked beef casserole ever again. Because kind of ironically, I thought it was the beef casserole's fault. It wasn't the recognition that I was eating an animal, even though that was, of course, the recognition I'd made. It was, oh, beef casseroles are disgusting. It makes, you know, I don't want to eat that. But I still ate steak and lots of different other body parts of animals. So it was funny how I had these little moments throughout my life that kind of have led me to this point. And it's an interesting thing to, to kind of more broadly reflect on, I think, is that we kind of have this moment in our life where we go, that's what made me vegan, or that's what pushed me to veganism. But actually, when we think about our lives, there's probably lots of these smaller moments that occur. And hopefully through the conversations I have, that can be one of those smaller moments for someone where, you know, they might not go vegan straight away. I hope they do, but they might not. But if they do it in six to eight months or a year or two years, whenever it is, they might look back on that conversation and go, oh, that was one of those moments that led me down this path. And, and when we think about our childhood and our even adulthood and all those experiences we have, I think there's a lot there that can be unpacked in a way that has led us to this realization we've had now. Definitely. So you're at that point in your life, 
you were 12 years old, you have that experience. So what happens between then and and essentially Earthling Ed where you begin to really understand the systems that are involved and the impact of your food choices and, and become motivated to, to change the way that you're eating? Yeah. Well, for about six years, things stayed mostly the same. I carried on eating lots of animals. In fact, I, I became quite interested in eating lots of steak. I think when I turned like 17, I thought eating steak was this really cool manly thing to do. And um, I remember always wanting it to be bloody, like rare with blood. And I always thought that that was a really a real Gosh, statement. I think most people would be very, like that know you now, would yeah. be very surprised by that. Probably, probably. <laughs> I think it was probably that kind of like fragile 17-year-old masculinity that I had to establish myself as a, as a and becoming an 18-year-old man and having to eat lots of bloody steak. And I thought that was probably an appropriate way of doing it because we know that's another thing, you know, we have these cultural constructs around what eating meat means to us and, and what it symbolizes beyond just food. And so I, when I became 18, I moved to London in, in the UK to study university at university. And I started meeting vegetarians there. And I actually formed a kind of a, a friendship group where probably about half of them were vegetarian, which made me think a little bit about it. And it became very normalized. And it wasn't this joke anymore to me. And whilst they never said anything to me about being vegetarian, they never preached it or, you know, tried to get me to be vegetarian. I think just being around them made me think a little bit more about my consumption of animals. And were they mostly vegetarian for ethical reasons? Yes. I, I, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a health thing. It was definitely um, an ethical thing. I think a little bit environmental, but at that point, this was 2012, you know, this was before we were really talking about the environmental impacts. Obviously a lot of people knew, but it wasn't such, such a mainstream thing. So it was mainly ethical at that point for those people. Um, and then when I was, how old was I? 20, I think it was 2014. I came across this story and the story was about a, a, a truck carrying six and a half thousand chickens crashing on the way to a slaughterhouse. And it was near a city called Manchester in, in Northern England. And I remember reading this story and just feeling very horrified because hundreds of the birds had died and there were hundreds more who were suffering. So they had broken bones, broken wings, you know, broken beaks. They were just mutilated and suffering on the side of the road. And that word suffering became really important to me because I recognized for the first time that the animals who I consume can suffer and you know, can experience negative emotions. And I thought, well, I'm paying for them to experience this. You know, I'm putting them in a situation where they are suffering, where they are being mutilated, where they are, where they are having pain inflicted upon them. Well, how do I justify that? And the problem was I was a huge KFC fan at the time. I, I loved fried chicken. And I remember that in my fridge at that time was a leftover KFC. So I was kind of confronted with this ultimatum of going, do I value the taste of the KFC, which I enjoy very much, over the suffering and life of these chickens? Now, what do I value more, life or taste, basically? And I realized that, of course, my taste buds shouldn't you know, impact the lives of others, shouldn't cause suffering to someone else. You know, my sensory pleasure shouldn't mean that someone else has to endure a process of intense suffering and ultimately a death in a slaughterhouse. That's so arbitrary, you know, to kill someone for, for that reason. So I, I went vegetarian. I didn't know much about dairy or eggs, but and I didn't know any vegans. So I went vegetarian at that point with my girlfriend. And after about eight months of being vegetarian, she saw the poster for the film Earthlings that someone had shared on her social media, this person who was vegan, who she was following. And she kept saying to me, you know, Ed, we should, we should really watch this documentary, you know. And I said to her, not a chance. 
you know, I know what that documentary is about. It's about animal suffering. It's undercover footage. It's probably all filmed by Peter. So it's probably all propaganda. And I don't want to have anything to do with it. Even, even as a vegetarian, I thought vegans were these extremists and they were dogmatic and they were and it's, weird. it's not the same as it is in the UK, right? No. That's a very common sort of reaction to a lot of those documentaries. Yeah, it is. I mean, the UK, we are kind of very arrogant about our animal welfare standards. I mean, most countries are, to be fair. But the UK, I think because when you look at the history of the UK, you know, the RSPCA was the first animal welfare charity set up in the world. And it was in the UK. You know, we've always had these kind of like high opinions of ourselves when it comes to our treatment of animals, which is super ironic because it's not that much different. But to be fair, when you look at welfare laws, the UK is one of the highest ranked in the world. It's like us, Switzerland, Sweden, Norway. You know, the US is, is low, Australia is not much higher. So it is kind of, it, it, we are right in saying that we have the best standards in the world, but those standards don't mean anything. And that's the problem. You know, when you look at the fine print, look at the details of what we actually allow legally, it's very, very, very horrible, but it's also, it's not very, very, very different to anywhere else. It's just small changes about space allowances and things you can and can't do, but the overarching problem still remains. And we sometimes overlook that. Yeah, I guess the, the question that you could ask yourself is even with the, the best of conditions, would you swap places with the animal? It's a great question. Oh, and, and would we put our pets in that situation? You know, the companion animals, one thing that I sometimes say to people is, you know, if you have a dog or a cat, a rabbit, any animal as a companion in your home, if they needed to be euthanized, would you take them to a slaughterhouse? No one would do that. But the fact that we wouldn't do that just, just proves it's, that they're not humane. You know, if, if in slaughterhouses, these animals are treated really well, they don't suffer, they have a quick and painless death and they're humane, then why don't we line up our dogs and cats to be euthanized in them? Because to me, that's, that's the definition of the perfect death for an animal who has to die. But we, we don't do that because we recognize that what we do in slaughterhouses, we wouldn't want done to animals who we have a connection with because we know it's not really humane. We know that it's terrible. So I, it's a really good point. Would we put ourselves in their position? And just as a basic minimum, would we put animals who we have a connection with in their position? And if we wouldn't, well then we already know that it's not a, a desirable situation to be in, you know. So you watch Earthlings. Eventually. Eventually. I was resistant. Okay. My girlfriend kept telling me, this went on for a few weeks, maybe even a couple of months. It went on for a little while. You know, Ed, we should watch it. Me saying, no, I'm not going to watch it. And I have a little bit of an Achilles heel, which is that, you know, I can be quite lazy in the mornings and I can be reluctant to start the day. So she knows this about me, obviously. So one morning she wakes up and she gets the laptop and she puts the documentary she took on. Advantage. She took advantage. <laughs> she knows me too well. She knows my weaknesses. And she said, you can either get out of bed or watch the documentary. And I said, oh, you drive a hard bargain. All right, I'll watch it. So I watched it. Um, 90 minutes or an hour 40 later. Yeah, I was just, just absolutely shocked. Um, I had a... A, a companion animal hamster at the time called Rupert, Rupert the hamster. I'd had him for a couple of years at that point. And, you know, I loved, loved Rupert very much. He was such a little character. And so after the documentary had finished, I went to spend some time with Rupert. I felt that maybe being around an animal might make me feel better. Because, you know, the film, for those who haven't seen it or don't know about it, it's objectively very graphic. It doesn't hold back from just showing, you know, it's hidden camera footage, it's, you know, um, footage that's filmed by workers in, in slaughterhouses and farms, but also, you know, circuses and zoos and other places of animal exploitation as well and testing laboratories. And there was a scene in the documentary where a guinea pig is kind of held up and is injected with some undisclosed chemical. And then the, the scene itself isn't really that graphic compared to the rest of the film. 
It's not that visually arresting, but the concept of what's happening is is deeply upsetting, of course. And I remember looking at Rupert and thinking he's not any different to the guinea pig, really. He's a little bit smaller, but there's nothing meaningfully different between the guinea pig and the hamster. So why would I value the hamster, but not the guinea pig who's been tested on? But then I thought, well, hang on, what about the pigs and the cows and the chickens? And I was vegetarian at this point, but I, I still recognized through watching this film that, well, dairy cows are exploited and killed, egg-laying hens are, and even clothing. I think many vegetarians don't think too closely about clothing, you know, the leather shoes or whatever it might be. And, and I was probably the same. I don't think I bought any shoes during that time, but I probably wouldn't have thought too deeply about it. So I was forced to confront the the fact that meat is just one part of the problem. And the documentary, I think at the very beginning, it talks about this notion of speciesism, you know, this idea of, you know, arbitrarily discriminating against someone because of their species. And I'd never heard that before and thought it was an unusual concept. But I remember looking at Rupert the hamster and thinking, you know, when we, when we, value someone's life just based on the connection that they provide to us, but don't value someone else. And the reason we don't value them is because of their species. Well, that is an arbitrary form of discrimination. So even though I was vegetarian, I hadn't really thought too much about it. I just thought meat is bad. But I realized at that point that it's not really about the meat or even the dairy and eggs. It's not about the food, it's about the mentality. You know, food is a symptom of the problem. The problem is the fact that we view ourselves in such a dominant position that we can so arbitrarily you know, tyrannize and harm others just because of our physical and intellectual dominance. That's the issue, that we view ourselves in such a, a, a this, this pinnacle of, of existence so arrogantly that anyone beneath us all of a sudden isn't granted the right just to their own body. And I thought, wow, this is, this is a big issue. Um, an issue that requires me to be vegan, but an issue that potentially requires me to think a little bit beyond that. And so I was vegan for maybe a year or so, or nine months. And uh, my girlfriend and I decided that we should speak up about it. You know, I think we'd watched Cowspiracy at that point, Forks Over Knives, a few other, a few other things, and had realized that actually this is a very big issue. You know, big for the animals, but big in other ways as well. This is a kind of a an, an issue, the issue of animal exploitation is such a wide-ranging issue that affects every single living being on this planet. Everyone suffers because of what we do to animals. I mean, even the farmers who farm animals in the short term, you know, they make financial gains. But in the long term, we're all going to suffer the consequences of destroying our land, you know, destroying soils, destroying our air and our environment. We're all going to suffer, even, even those who profit from it right now. The, the, the short-sighted arrogance of humanity, of course, is perfectly shown in that example. But everyone suffers as a consequence of this. And therefore we have to do something about it. That's how I felt. And starting a YouTube channel seemed to be the right thing to do at that time. So that's what I did. Looking back now, how important is it to you when you're speaking to to others to remember what it was like when you were 17, 18, 19 and unconscious of all of this? And, and I guess more directly speaking to the fact that very good people can be making bad decisions, you know, unknowingly supporting these systems. Is that an important thing for you to to sort of constantly check in with? Yeah, I mean, when you first start that question, the, the immediate thing that I was going to say is what you said. The recognition that good people can do bad things is so important because we don't live in this perfect world or we don't live in a world where we can be perfect. You know, we can never be morally pure. And so as soon as we realize that people partake in bad industries, not because they're bad people, but because of 
societal constructs, because of you know cultures, because of the way that we're raised, it becomes a lot easier to understand and empathize with their position. And look, as vegans, we're far from perfect as well. You know, I think we're just recognizing that we inherently are all making decisions every single day, which potentially we could always do better. And, and it's challenging ourselves to improve a little by little, which is really important. And veganism, when I say little by little, I don't mean baby steps in terms of veganism. I mean, veganism has been one of those examples of something little, which contributes to a, to a, a greater system change for, you know, beyond just food and animals, of course. So I think just recognizing that we are all living with a huge amount of baggage you know, our decision-making, our understanding of our morals, of our values, our understanding of the impact that we have on this world is kind of created through this history, you know, not just our history, but our family's history and our, you know, ancestors' history. And it's all accumulating in our decision-making at this time. And I think if we can recognize that there is social, cultural, psychological barriers that affect people's decision-making, it's easier to understand them. And understanding and empathizing with someone doesn't mean agreeing with them. It doesn't mean not holding them accountable. It's just basically paying a bit of respect to understanding that the way people often operate isn't predicated on them being intrinsically bad. And I think when we can break through that barrier of seeing someone as just an, an individual making individual decisions and recognize them as an individual making decisions that are influenced by all of these external factors, it's easier to try and understand and empathize with their situation. And then through that, we can create a deeper understanding of the mechanisms behind our choices and behind our actions. And through understanding the mechanisms, we can find out how to respond to them. How do we get through to people? Because we don't understand someone, if we don't listen to people, if we don't empathize with them, how can we ever give them a retort that's actually going to be effective? Because we're arguing with, with someone we don't, we don't understand. So the first part of a conversation, I, I think, is beyond building that rapport, is trying to understand their position. Why do they feel the way that they do? What has influenced that? And through that, we can start to break down those barriers little by little and hopefully have an impact on that person. But it comes down to listening and empathy and then accountability as a consequence of that. I want to get into some of the rebuttals and I guess logic that perhaps people are using when you're sitting down and having some of these conversations and, and using them as a bit of an, an example to help share how you would navigate that. But before we get there, I think it's important to step through what is actually happening when we talk about exploitation. I think it's important to actually recognize the atrocities that are occurring, what what we are putting these animals through, what they are enduring. So perhaps we kind of step through, you know, factory farmed animals, for example. What What is the life of, of an animal that enters a factory farmed system like? Well, the first thing to establish is these animals are by and large um, artificially bred, or at least their breeding is facilitated in an artificial environment. One of the things that people often say to me is they'll say, well, you know, Ed, what, you know, we, there's all these animals that we kill. If we stop killing them, they'll just overrun us, you know, but there's all these animals that exist anyway. So why don't we kill them? And firstly, the thing to understand is that we breed them into existence. And so that process can vary for many different animals based on their anatomies, of course, but it's never a pleasant experience for these animals, you know, particularly, I mean, the males and females are both exploited in these environments. Um, so that's the first thing to recognize is this artificial breeding, this kind of like hijacking of a natural biological function and then manipulating it for our personal gain. And then that also follows onto the selective breeding, you know, these factory farmed animals and, and indeed non-factory farmed animals as well, uh, by and large selectively bred. M one of the main ways that we do that is to make them grow faster. You know, broiler chickens, which are the, which is the classification or the name that we give to chickens who we raise for meat, for their flesh, 
well, they've been selectively bred to reach slaughter weight in about six Is that weeks. Why they break their legs? Yeah, because their legs are often not strong enough. Exactly. I mean, they to put it into perspective, um, if a if a, a newborn human grew at the same rate as a farmed chicken, by their third birthday they would weigh twenty eight stone, which is about one hundred and seventy eight kilograms. I think. Gosh, which is insane when you put it in that human context. Because they grow. I mean, if you think about a six week chick. Because they're babies, you know, chickens when they're killed are, are babies, really. But the, because they've been selectively bred to grow so fast, they look more like adult chickens, but they're actually still chicks, um, which is so troubling to think about. So yeah, they grow so fast, their organs fail. And that's interesting because one one of the things I hear is, isn't a life better than no life yeah. for these animals, right? I hear that a lot. It's an interesting. It's an interesting statement. With chickens, it's very, it's very clear cut. No one would want to live the life of a chicken. You know, their life from the moment they're born is intense suffering. And ninety nine point nine percent of chickens in the U.S. are factory farmed. That's a USDA statistic. In the U.K., it's ninety five percent. And remember, like we said before, the U.K. is the best in the world, and still ninety five percent are factory farmed. And then even that percentage that aren't factory farmed, it just means that they they are a slower growth rate, so they live for two weeks longer. You know, that that's that's what free range two poultry. Weeks. Yeah. About two weeks, it's 56 days rather than 42. And those are kind of like the high welfare, free range chickens. It's it's preposterous, really. The the classifications we give and the humane washing that we, you know, we assign to these products is is kind of startling. But yeah, for a chicken, there's nothing desirable about their life. Um, you know, that argument becomes interesting, I think, when we look at grass-fed cows. And when people say, well, you know, these these animals live a good life. And, you know, you could make the argument that for many kind of outdoor reared cows and cattle in general, that they have a mostly pleasant existence. In the US, unfortunately, there's still things like branding. I think in Australia as well, branding that takes place where they're branded of a hot iron rod or something, which is just so archaic. And there will be mutilations like castrations and disbudding and dehorning that take place. But outside of those mutilations, you could argue that their day-to-day life is quite pleasant because they're grazing and, you know, and doing things that cows would do normally. A lot of them still end up in a factory farm, don't they, for the last bit? Exactly right, yeah. So even in these grass-fed pasture systems, by and large, the last quarter of their life, they're, they're kind of fattened up in feedlots. I don't think everyone knows that. No. So that can still be sold as grass-fed beef. Yeah, the, the stipulations vary in different countries, but I think in the US at least, um, as long as they've lived more than 25% of their life outside of a feedlot, they can be classified as kind of grain uh, pasture-raised. So it varies and you'd have to check the legislations in individual countries. But yes, even in the UK, we have feedlots now, which is a, a relatively new thing, where for the last part of their life, maybe for the last 20% of their life or such, they get taken to these feedlots. They're fattened up on grain till they get to slaughter weight and then they're taken to be slaughtered. But when you go into a supermarket, you're buying the free-range, grass-fed, pasture-raised. So there are all these different systems within kind of these, you know, larger systems that we don't necessarily know about. And ultimately, they're still killed. And if you think about it, think about cattle, their average lifespan is 20, maybe even 25 years. You know, the beef industry, which when we look at all the systems of animal farming that exist, is probably the system that causes the least day-to-day suffering. They're, they're killed at 12 months to 24 months. So one-tenth of their life, maybe even, you know, one-twentieth of their life. And then we kind of justify it saying, well, they had a good life. The problem with that argument is at a certain point, you have to say that they've had enough of a good life. So if you're saying, well, it's okay to kill an animal if they've lived a happy life, at a certain point, you've got to say they've had their fill of happiness, you know, because every day that we don't kill them is another day where they can experience more happiness. Mm. And again, would it be okay to do that to your dog? Exactly. No one would say that. No one would be like, oh, well, I know I rescued this dog from a shelter. I gave them six months of a life and then cut their throat. People are like, well, that's how could you do that? 
I said, well, they had a happy life for six months, so surely that's fine then. And, and also there's a cruelty in, in a different way to animals who live a happy life because you are depriving them of a happy existence. For a, a chicken who lives for six weeks, death is a mercy because of the suffering they endure. That doesn't make it right to kill them, but the death is an end to their suffering. They don't want to be alive. They, exactly. They just they, they don't want to be there. The, the pain is and the suffering, the organ failure, the, the the barns they're raised in, the ammonia because they're just stood in feces every single day. It, you know, the ammonia burns them. It hurts their eyes, burns the feathers off their their chests. You know, every day is a torturous day for a chicken. So death is a mercy. It, that doesn't make it justified. It just means that, that it shouldn't happen at all. But for a cow or, or, a, or a, you know, a bull who's living a pleasurable life, it's almost more cruel in a way to kill them because the death could deprive them of a happier existence. And that doesn't even look at the environmental aspects, you know, with a, the land usage, the deforestation, the capacity to increase biodiversity by rewilding. And, you know, fundamentally the argument we're using is it's acceptable for me to eat an animal because they've lived a happy life. Well, what that ignores is the fact that if we rewilded these lands and increased biodiversity, we'd increase more happiness for animals. There'd be more animals living a happy life. But we deprive you know, wildlife and we create you know, systems that cause species extinction, which creates a net, you know, a net loss in wild animal happiness because we want to make a cow happy for 12 months you know, out of the 20 to 25 year lifespan they could live. It doesn't really work because that's not the primary focus of why we eat beef. It's because we like how it tastes, you know? So perhaps someone's thinking, okay, I, that makes sense to me, chicken and, and meat. I can see how the ethical option is to simply opt out, uh, no matter if it's factory farmed or organic free range. But what about milk and eggs? The dairy and egg industries are potentially worse in terms of the suffering they cause. When we look at dairy cows, you know, obviously, well, I say obviously, but many people don't realize this, actually. I've had conversations with people that don't realize this. But because cows are mammals, you know, they only produce milk to feed their children, right? And that seems so obvious to say, but a lot of people I speak to will say things like, well, you know, a cow eats grass, and that's why they produce milk, which is strange. Or just cows just produce milk, you know, it's just an automatic function of them, you know, as if they've just been created just to endlessly produce milk for humans. Um and it's so strange, but they're mammals. And so biologically, of course, they lactate to feed their offspring like mammals do. So we have to impregnate cows. And, you know, the, the forced impregnation of cows is potentially the one that people are most aware of because it's discussed the most. But, you know, pigs are forcibly impregnated in much a similar way as well. You know, cows raised for their, for their flesh, just for beef, are, you know, can often be bred artificially in the same way. So it's not just dairy cows, but dairy cows are artificially bred. And that seems to be just a, you know, a standard system thing to do, regardless of whether it's organic, free range, factory farmed, these processes are mo mostly the same. So firstly, of course, the farmer has to get semen from a bull, which is, a, you know, I mean, we can all use our imaginations to, to work out how they it's do that. It's a manual process. It's a manual process, hands-on. It's, <laughs> it's a grim thing. And then they obviously have to put the semen inside the female cow. And they do that again with their, with their hands and arms. And so it's a very unpleasant process that involves, you know, violation of these animals' uh, reproductive, you know, systems. And then when the, the child is born, obviously the farm is confronted with a problem because he wants to sell the milk. And milk, you know, to be fair to farmers, milk prices are very low, so they can't, you know, they can't spare any milk if they want to make a profit. But they're faced with this, this problem where there's this new child, this cow's offspring, who also wants to drink the milk. So what does the farmer do? He separates the babies from their mothers. And this normally happens within the first 24 hours. Now, the baby calf only needs the first feed from their mother because that feed is full of, of uh, 
um, antibodies that the calf needs to survive. But after that, they can be raised on you know, powdered milk um, and different formulas. So they're separated and normally placed in, in these solitary confinement hutches, where legally they'll spend about the first eight weeks of their life in solitary confinement hutches with barely any room to move. And then the female cows are obviously begin the process of being milked. Isn't that interesting just to think about your supermarket mm-hmm. and see all of the dairy and just to stop and recognize that that was meant for a baby calf? It's bizarre, right? Of all the things that we consume, dairy is the weirdest. Because you just think about that we wean off our mother's milk and then we wean onto someone else's mother's, but that someone else's mother's is a different species and to get their milk, we have to take the baby away from the mother. Why, why, would we, why would we ever think that that was a good idea? Like, why would we ever think that that was something that we needed? And there's, it's just so ironic that we're told by farmers, oh, but we need it to be healthy. Well, I mean, that's a, a, a terrible, terrible system. This, this, this you know, evolution of humanity that we needed for survival or to be healthy, the milk of someone else's mother. And by and large, this is another contradiction, I think, that farmers will often use where they you know, they say that we need meat and dairy and eggs to be healthy. And we talk about like meat and we say, well, okay, what species do we need to be healthy? We need uh, beef, so we need cows, we need chickens, we need lambs, certain types of fish, you know, all of these are healthy things. But we don't need dogs or cats or emus or alligators or lions or dolphins or whales. We don't need all of these other animals that other cultures around the world eat. Our health just conveniently is based upon eating the animals that the farmers in the countries where we live raise and also funnily enough conveniently have been raising for hundreds you know thousands of years long before we even knew about nutrients and vitamins and minerals long before we even knew what we needed to be healthy and so it's just such as a stroke of good fortune that all these thousands of years ago when we domesticated these certain species it just so happened they were the species that would make us healthy isn't that isn't that such as i just think that's such a great coincidence um i just think it's a strange paradox of of the argument um so yeah when it comes to dairy these animals are are exploited for a longer lifespan, you know, six years, sometimes eight years, maybe even a little bit longer in some scenarios. And every single year, they're forcibly impregnated. Every single year, they have their baby taken away from them. Every single year, they're hooked up to these machines day after day until the day that they're no longer profitable, where their milk production declines or they get something like mastitis, which, you know, affects the quality of the milk, means that it can't be sold. And if it's not treated, the, the cows will become, you know, useless in the eyes of the dairy industry. So then they're sent to be slaughtered. And every dairy cow is, you know, without fault. You know, every dairy cow will be killed because at a certain point, the, the dairy cow is no longer making money for the farmer and is costing them money. So the farmer's faced with the choice of, well, do I keep paying for this cow to live who's taking up space from another cow who I could breed into existence and make money from? And no farmer can afford to do that, nor wants to. So they're all taken to a slaughterhouse and they're killed in the exact same way as the cows we raised just for them, for their flesh. And then they're turned into cheap products like burgers and, you know, kind of pastries and just kind of cheaper processed meats. It's tragic. Mm. And what about the eggs? Eggs is a little bit different because eggs, again, come from the reproductive system, but the eggs are where the child of the chicken would, would form. So, you know, these eggs that we eat are unfertilized eggs. So we don't have the issue of babies being removed from their mothers in the egg industry, but what we do have is another unique situation, which is absolutely, again, found in every system of egg farming, whether it's organic, free range, caged, battery, you know, barn, whatever it might be. And that is that male chicks don't produce eggs. 
because then they're males, not females. And producing eggs is obviously a female reproductive thing. But they're also a different breed to the, the chickens that we raise for their meat. Like I said before, the, those chickens have been selectively bred to reach slaughter weight very, very quickly. The broiler chickens. The broiler chickens, exactly. Gotcha. But the egg-laying chicks, or the, the males in the egg-laying industry, they're not selectively bred to do that. Okay, so they can't just cross over. No, it won't be profitable enough. And it would take them too long to reach a you know a good weight to be slaughtered. And if we can just raise the broilers instead, why would we use space and, and resources and, and, and money to raise male chicks from the egg industry when we won't make as much money from them? You know, a fraction of the fraction of the money. So the male chicks are useless to to every industry. So as soon as they're born, they're killed, and they'll either be shredded in a macerator alive. They'll just be put on a conveyor belt and thrown into a macerator and ground up, or they'll be gassed to death. Those are the two common things. Which is tragic. It's just, it, but then I would say that those are the lucky animals. They're born and then they're killed instantly. But again, that's more preferable to what the females have to endure. The females are obviously placed in a different conveyor belt. They're not killed, but they are debeaked. They are then, you know, have um, those mutilations performed, and then they're taken to growing farms. And often what happens with egg-laying hens is they'll be taken to a, an initial farm where they kind of mature and start laying eggs. And then when they start laying eggs, they'll be taken to the laying farms. Is this the same for uh, free-range, organic, uh, in that, uh, say, for example, I, I walk into the store and buy free-range uh, organic eggs, Am I, would I be supporting a system where those male chicks are killed straight away? Without fail. Yeah. There is not a single country in the world that doesn't do that to male chicks. There have been talks about the potential for being able to identify the the sex of the chicks and the eggs. Prior to hatching. Exactly. And then yeah. destroy the eggs before they've hatched. Well, that would make sense. It would be preferable. Yeah, it would be preferable if we could do it early enough before they become sentient within the eggs, of course. Um, but at the, currently, as it stands, that technology isn't introduced. And even if it was, what we'd have to be careful for is the labeling. You know, I heard, you know, there's talk about these being called cruelty-free eggs, which is great for the male chicks, but it doesn't change anything for the females. So obviously when you look at caged and free range, there is a difference there. You know, caged is obviously the, the hens are kept in cages, which we can understand to be terrible for many reasons. But then the free range idea becomes a little bit of an interesting one. Before I was vegan, and even when I used to eat meat, you know, before I was even vegetarian, just vegetarian, I used to always buy free range eggs without fail. I, I would never buy caged eggs. I mean, I would probably buy cakes and foods that had, you know, caged eggs used. But if I was buying a, you know, a box of eggs, it would always be free range. Because I thought people who bought caged eggs were horrible animal abusers. Even when I used to pay for every other animal to be abused, including egg-laying hens for the free range eggs. But I thought that free range meant something. And now the problem is it's very good marketing. Very good marketing. Because you see the word free and you instantly think of what that word means. You know, subconsciously you're going, if I'm buying a box of eggs with the word free on them, then that means the hens have lived a good life. You know, they've been, they've had room to, to roam. They've done things that are natural to them. You know, I don't think about them being killed. I just think these are hens that are living a happy life and just constantly producing eggs. And it's a natural system for them, so it doesn't cause them suffering. So therefore everything's fine. So I used to always buy those free range eggs. And to add insult to injury, the, the company that I would buy, they were called Happy Eggs. So the company was called Happy Eggs and they were free range eggs. So I see the word free and I see the word happy. Why would I ever question the ethics of, of buying those, those eggs? You know, they seem perfect. 
That's not, that's not the case. Again, in the UK, for example, because that's where we have high welfare standards and I know it the best. In the UK, a farmer can legally house 16,000 birds per barn, which means he can legally house nine birds per square meter of space inside these barns. So a free range hen is entitled to one ninth of a square meter of space inside the barns that they're raised. They do have to have access to an outside area during the day. And by and large, that's fine. Um, they get a little bit more space outside. But this is only for 72 weeks. Now, when you look at footage of, of free range farms, what you see are these animals with things like lice and mites. And these are kind of like parasites and bugs that can eat away their feathers, that cause them stress. And they also suffer from high rates of osteoporosis. So what's interesting when, when you look at the data between caged eggs and free range eggs is that the rates of bone fractures can even be higher in free range. That's because of the extra movement they have and they can jump off perches and they can also attack each other. So... What you have is a system which is creating osteoporosis and bone fractures in these hens, regardless of whether they're caged or free range. And that's because we've selectively bred egg-laying hens to produce almost an egg a day. It's about 300 to 320 in a year. So almost an egg a day. But the wild ancestors of egg-laying hens are red jungle fowl, and they will lay maybe between 12 and 20 eggs in a year. So over a period of many, many, you know, hundreds of years, of course, and, and this process of selective breeding, we've taken a chicken from the wild and have bred them to a modern day egg layer who produces almost an egg a day. Now the shell is made of calcium. So that's what leads to these osteoporosis and, and, and bone fracture rates because of the amount of calcium that has been used to produce these eggs. Is that why they often, if they're left there, they will eat them? Is that right? Yeah, that's, yeah. If you crack the eggs, they'll, they'll often eat the eggs, yeah, which is a good way of replacing those lost nutrients because of course an egg is quite nutrient dense. So it requires a lot from the hen to produce the egg. Um, so you're right, you know, in sanctuaries and such, a lot of the sanctuary owners will feed the eggs back to the hens. Yeah. It's interesting that the comment that you made there about you would buy free range organic eggs, but if eggs were in another product, then perhaps you'd be okay with it. It's interesting where things sort of conflict with our morals when we get a bit of distance between the 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 decision that we're making directly or if someone else has kind of already made it, then we can we can uh, kind of formulate a position where it's okay. Exactly. When, when we don't see the, the product directly, it's very easy to not think, as you say, we can detach from what we're paying for. And it's the same with, with meat in general. One of the reasons, and I'd mentioned this just earlier in, this, in our conversation, is that I know when I was younger, I didn't like eating drumsticks and things that had bones in it. And so I liked to eat meat that didn't look like an animal, that didn't, you know, couldn't, I couldn't visually you know, see the animal in the meat that I was consuming, I could detach from that. And so, you know, often when we're confronted with some of the abject realities of what we're consuming or who we're consuming, it becomes a bit harder to digest that part of the pun. And we see this all the time with, you know, news stories about a KFC, you know, customer outraged because there's feathers in their KFC bucket or there was a, you know, a piece of an organ or something in their bucket. And this happens quite regularly outraged by it and they tweet at KFC or they tweet at McDonald's or whatever it is and complain that there's this piece of the animal they're consuming that they don't want to consume. And I think it breaks that illusion of us just eating a chicken burger and all of a sudden we're actually eating you know, a piece of a chicken. You know, we have to identify with the animal who has been killed for us to consume that in a way that we don't normally have to. And it's the same with those eggs. You know, I couldn't get away from it them being an egg and that system then, you know, I had to choose between caged or free range. And morally I was like, well, I have to choose free range, you know, because caged is so evil, obviously. 
but that really morally there's, there's hardly any difference. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. Another example of that, and it's similar to actually you seeing that truck that crashed with the chickens. You know, often you'll see headlines, maybe it's some floods and some cattle are, are killed. And usually there is an outpour of people feeling, you know, very emotional about that. But then, as, as you point out, you know, rightfully disconnected from the fact that those animals were going to be slaughtered anyway for the food that they're eating. This to me is one of the most interesting things about uh, these stories of animals in the news, whether it's that they've been killed because of a natural disaster, such as the floods. I know that's been happening in, in Canada recently in the past few weeks, but also when animals escape. And I find this to be really, a really interesting subject. When animals escape from slaughterhouses, we sympathize with them. There was a, a cow who escaped from a slaughterhouse near Carlisle in the UK. And as soon as the cow had escaped, they became a, a kind of a news story. And everyone was rooting for this cow to survive. They named her Daisy online. You know, she, she was given this name by concerned members of the public who, who weren't vegan. At least most of them won't have been vegan. And they were, people became very upset because police officers shot and killed Daisy. This is a recurring thing that you know, animals escape. They go into cities or suburban areas and the police will just kill them. I think there was one that happened in the US where a police vehicle like, you know, ran over this cow. Like just, it was, yeah, just crazy really. But people are very upset about that. And I think why that happens is we've had to connect with that animal. So the problem that we often have is, like we just said, we're so disconnected. And because we're disconnected from the animals who we consume, we can, we can do something called otherize them. Otherizing is basically this idea of you, you categorize them as being different. And because they're different, you can then find a reason to treat them differently. We've done it with humans throughout history. You know, we, we've categorized different humans based on arbitrary uh, differences, such as, you know, sexuality, gender, skin color, whatever it might be. And then because we categorize them and box them in a different way, we don't think that society's rules and morals need to apply to them because they're different. And so we do that with the animals who we consume. By and large, we create kind of three big categories of animals. We have wild animals, we have pets, and then we have food animals. Those seem to be the general, you know, three. So we have different categorizations for those different animals, but food animals, because they've been classified as food and because we've otherized them in this way, we then start to do things very interestingly. We start to deny their individuality. We start to deny their personalities. We start to view them as these abstract concepts. You know, pigs are dirty, chickens are stupid. We have these, these kind of broad generalizations for an entire species. Because if we devalue them enough to the point where they're just this, this kind of almost inanimate a collection of commodity. objects, exactly, a commodity, their livestock. And that word itself is interesting because, you know, stock is what we find on supermarket shelves. So we've already commodified them and objectified them through the, the term livestock. You know, this is stock that is alive. So we have to kill them, obviously, to get them on the shelves. So we categorize them this way. And then through that categorization, we deny them the basic principles of, of, uh, that, that create the need for moral consideration. It would Sentience. be similar to aliens sort of just coming down and plucking humans 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there being no Ed, there's no Simon, when, and just completely disregarding and forgetting the individual. Yeah, it's like, exactly. And that's what we do to these animals. It's a great analogy. It is just like that. You know, we recognize that we are very similar in many ways as humans, of course. There are these fundamental similarities that exist. But there are also these these very important differences, things that make us unique, things that make me, Ed, and you, Simon, and the listeners who they are, things that make us this individual. But with the animals, particularly the food animals, because you know, with pets, we do we do the similar thing. We say this is Bo- Boxer the dog, or Fluffy the cat, or you know, you know, a rabbit's name, whatever that might be. You know, we have all these different things that create identities within these animals, names, personalities, likes, and dislikes. We might recognize that this dog has anxiety, but this dog is very outgoing. You know, this cat likes to have cuddles, but this cat doesn't. You know, we create these personalities for these animals based on how they exhibit themselves. But with the animals who we farm and kill, because we never get the chance to see them exhibit their personalities, we never get to identify with them as individuals, we create these abstracts of of who they are. So they're just all the same. And by creating this kind of uniqueness and this lack of individuality, it makes it much easier to justify harming them because, well, there's nothing that makes them intrinsically valuable anymore because of the way that we've categorized them. So other than getting out and seeing these animals in the factory farms or on pasture and spending time with them, you know, what's what's the solution there to get people to be better connected to the point where they do value them the same as they would value a pet? I think it comes down to education and intellectual honesty. And what I mean by that is, if we look for our history, our relationship with animals has broadly changed based on our understanding of animals. You know, there was a time where even dogs and cats and animals who we now broadly accept to deserve moral consideration, even though, you know, we do terrible things to these animals as well, even within societies that claim to love them. But outside of that, when we look for our history, there was a time where we viewed animals as these kind of automatons. You know, where we could do terrible things to them and it didn't matter because of who they were and, or who they weren't. You know, they're just these inanimate objects almost. But as we progressed as a society and as our understanding of sentience, of consciousness, of capacities began to develop alongside us and we became more intelligent about these issues, we started to recognize that these weren't things that only we had. It wasn't just humans who experienced subjectively. It wasn't just humans who had feelings. It wasn't just humans who had personalities. And as that that change happened, our relationship with animals broadly changed as well. And so what we've we've kind of done is we've we've come so far in that path. But as you, as I was just saying, we have these categorizations. And so what we need to do is we need to intellectually recognize that morally there's no difference. Outside of those cultural constructs that we've created, there isn't any significant difference between these animals that would warrant one deserving moral consideration, but not another. You know, we have to recognize that they both deserve moral consideration because intellectually, we understand the capacities of these animals who we farm are broadly the same in every single way that matters to the animals who we don't, and indeed even to us. So I think whilst we're never going to come face to face with all of these animals, whilst we're never going to be able to interact and recognize them as individuals, intellectually, we are cognitively capable of of being able to understand those concepts. And that's one of the things that makes humans unique is we are able to understand complex ideas in a way that other animals probably can't as far as we're aware. And that provides us a sense of responsibility. You know, people will often say to me, but we're more intelligent. And I'm like, precisely. You know, we have moral agency. We understand the consequences of our actions. We can rationalize and, you know, see the consequence of what, you know, others are forced to endure for what we do. And because we have this intelligence, we have a responsibility to act accordingly and morally based on the fact that we do know the stakes. 
So what's interesting about when these animals escape from slaughterhouses is they're breaking out of that categorization. So whilst we have cows as being cows, when Daisy the cow in Carlisle escapes, she becomes Daisy the cow. She's no longer this abstract being or this abstract concept. She's an individual who clearly has a personality because she has decided that escaping is the preferable thing. And that's interesting. If an animal is willing to put themselves in a dangerous situation where they don't know the consequences. You know, if they flee from the farm or the slaughterhouse truck, they're running into an unknown situation, but they've decided that unknown situation is preferable to the situation they're in. It's so bad, they would rather take a risk of escaping than stay in that situation. But the problem then is we just identify with that one animal. We identify with Daisy the cow. We, we think that she deserves life because she's different. You know, she's escaped, so she's she's not like the other cows who are still in the slaughterhouse. She's earned her right to freedom. And that's another problem with how we view animals. We, we decide that they have to earn the right to their life. They have to do something heroic or, you know, uncharacteristic to not be killed. Mm. But I think you're right. I think if you feel empathy for Daisy the cow, we are intelligent enough to know that she is she is representative of all of the other individuals who are, you know, of the exact same value. I'm, I'm interested in, you know, you've obviously had probably by this point thousands of different conversations with people, both online, uh, in person. I'm interested what some of the strongest rebuttals are, some of the strongest arguments perhaps against veganism being the, the sort of moral baseline. Where would you where would you like to start there? It's a really, really good question. The the strongest one is just that issue of necessity. So obviously veganism becomes a moral obligation when we have the choice. You know, when we talk about issues, by and large, they become issues when we can choose between doing one thing or another. So, you know, I could say that not murdering a human is a moral obligation. And we all agree with that. But if there was a necessity to kill a human, you know, out of self-defense, or if they were going to harm other people and you stepped in to stop that, well, the, the killing of a human becomes morally justified because you have you have no choice. It's a similar thing with what we do to animals. When we have that choice, then it becomes a moral obligation because we can choose between inflicting animal suffering or reducing animal suffering. But in the absence of that choice, then it becomes becomes different. So obviously we live, well, we, you and I, we live in a society and we live with the availability and abundance of, of being able to make different choices, right? But there are people in the world who can't do that, who don't have the the, the means to do it, or maybe live in a, in a society or in a culture where there isn't, you know, the availability of foods that we have and choices. So I think that that to me is, is a good argument. You know, if someone is in a situation where they can't go vegan, well, then there is no moral obligation there because of the necessity of their environment. But if someone has the choice, I've never found an argument where I've gone, oh, that's okay. You know, I've never come across something where I've thought, oh, well, that makes it fine then. Because as soon as you have that choice and that capability, there is no argument that can justify it. That's what I found, at least. <laughs> so I'm going to to list a few things that I've seen, and uh, I don't I don't think these are particularly strong arguments, but I see them coming up quite frequently, and I know that you will have too. The first would simply be, Ed, you know, I hear what you're saying, but you're being a bit militant. You know, don't you think that that removing all animal products from from our diet is a little extreme? It's a good, yeah, I hear that all the time. So you're right about that. I think what's interesting is when we talk about the word extreme and militant, 
the fact that we've, you know, degraded animals to such an extent that we find it extreme not to harm them is a, a real indictment of, this, of the society that we live in and the mindset that we have. So I would always say, that, well, it's extreme to cause needless suffering if we don't have to. You know, if we live in, in a world, and this is the world that most of us live in, where, you know, someone who abuses a dog is a, you know, is an animal abuser, someone who abuses a pig is normal, and someone who abuses neither is extreme, then that speaks to how, you know, sick our society is with our treatment of animals. So I would say when it comes to being militant, well, what's militant about not causing harm? When we talk about militancy behind our views, there's nothing more militant or extreme than forcing someone else to live a life of suffering and be killed because arbitrarily we want to consume them, you know, because we, we find it dogmatic to not harm them. So I think it's about a sense of perspective, trying to help people understand that, well, you know, it's, it's deeply hypocritical, the attitudes we have to animals. And if, if our philosophy in life is to reduce suffering wherever possible, then not buying animal products is the least extreme thing we can do with the situation that we have in front of us. What about someone saying it's, it's just the circle of life? You know, it's the way that it is. Animals eat animals. Plenty would eat us if given the opportunity, for example, a, a lion. The circle of life fundamentally just means that all who are born will one day die. That's the circle of life. It doesn't mean anything that happens between that. You know, it doesn't give us the right to arbitrarily kill someone prematurely because every every single being will die one day. You know, we could use that to harm each other. You know, what's the circle of life? I know I murdered them, but they were going to die anyway. And you know, we don't do it with dogs. We don't do it with any other animals in the wild. You know, the Cecil, the lion killer, wasn't justified in shooting Cecil because this is the circle of life, or because Cecil would kill him. Uh, you know, if they were given the chance to. So we don't use these justifications outside of this one particular context. And although other animals in the wild do kill other animals, they do so out of necessity. And also they don't have the intelligence to be able to rationalize the decisions, their decisions in the same way that we can. They don't have the moral agency that we have to go, this is wrong for these reasons, and I can choose something else. You know, a lion hunts a gazelle because they have no choice. Whereas we have the choice to not pick up the steak in the supermarket or not pick up the chicken you know, in the fast food shop. We don't have to do that. So we wouldn't compare ourselves to wild animals in any other situation. You know, imagine if... Uh, you know, infanticide was legal because lions killed their children, you know, their cubs from time to time. Or imagine if sexual exploitation was acceptable because animals in the wild will sexually exploit each other for gratification. We would never allow those things in the human society because, well, we understand them to be wrong. How about a vegan diet does not eliminate all pain and, and suffering and, and there are many crop deaths possibly more than would occur for my grass-fed beef, eggs, et cetera. I'm sure that's another one that you get. Yeah, a lot. Um, it's a deeply frustrating one because vegans are not perfect, and but we should never say that we are. We have to understand that by living the life that we have and by requiring certain necessities for survival, primarily food and water, of course, well, there's going to be a system that requires some level of exploitation there, whether it's ex exploitation of the soils and the insects in the soils, whatever it might be. And crop deaths do occur. You know, animals will die during the production of plant-based foods. We can't get around that currently. You know, in the future, we're going to have things like vertical farming and such, which will get around that problem very succinctly. But for the time being in the situation we have, we have to understand that animals will die during crop deaths. But the important thing is it's a reduction of suffering. That's the primary focus here. We're reducing the number of animals being killed. There's also this problem of like people saying, well, you know, it's these mice and rats and birds. And realistically, it's, it's not. When we look at the data, um, people have put like radio trackers on rodents in, in, around, in and around crop fields. Well, 
they run away from the combine harvesters. You know, they run away from the equipment because it's loud and noisy. And we probably recognize that birds will fly off rather than allowing themselves to be to be harvested with the plants. So we're talking about insects and we're talking about primarily about smaller animals such as such as those. It doesn't make it a morally perfect situation, but it's a reduction of the suffering. Now, people that say, well, you know, I hunt or eat grass-fed cows, so I'm killing less animals. That was my next question. Yeah. This... Perhaps they hunt and they have, they hunted one or two animals and that's their food for the year. Yeah. Well, I mean, firstly, unless you're subscribing to the lion diet or something, you're not only eating those animals. Most people aren't strictly eating just a red meat diet. So most people are eating plants. But beside that, we, we already know that animals who are pasture-raised and grass-fed can also be fed grains and have their diets supplemented with other food sources. And that does happen. So a lot of the grass-fed animals that we consume are being fed grain. So straight away, we see there's a problem there because the grain is coming from animals who are, you know, who were killed in crop production as well. So that doesn't, that doesn't reduce suffering. And also, again, we have to look at the bigger picture here. In the US, about half of all agricultural land, so about 20% of agricultural land is given to cattle grazing or cattle farming, so beef production. Yet it only provides 3% of, of calories. So it's an incredibly inefficient system, but it's also incredibly land intensive. Now, if we take that land, and it could be marginal land, marginal land meaning that it couldn't be used for growing crops, but if we took that land and removed the cows from it, what we could do is rewild that land. So that would mean uh, kind of long uh, grasses, so like wildflower meadows, you know, wild grass areas, but it could also be forests and, and woodlands and different types of environments like that. And so if the argument is, well, by consuming this cow, I'm only killing this one cow, we're missing the broader picture, which is if we didn't kill that one cow and we instead return that land to the wild and allowed natural vegetation to emerge, there would be many more animals there living, uh, you know, a, a, a more kind of beneficial life to those ecosystems, the insects, the smaller birds, the, the, the rodents and, you know, the larger herbivorous animals as well would have that space. And so actually by farming cows, we're depriving animals of an existence that they'd be able to have in the wild. So again, even if you could quantifiably say, well, I only eat this one cow every single year, therefore I'm causing less animal deaths than you, it misses the bigger picture, which is that if we want to create more animal happiness overall, and our primary focus is reducing animal deaths, well, let's give that land back to nature so that biodiversity can reclaim that land, rather than you know farming for cows for a product that's incredibly inefficient. On the topic of cows, what about someone saying, well, we need these cows to regenerate land? and to regenerate soils and bring back biodiversity and, and likely pointing to regenerative agriculture, holistic grazing. Regenerative has become the new buzzword. You know, sustainability has lost its kind of um, glitzy, you know, reputation because it's used everywhere by everyone now. So regenerative has become this new buzzword in agriculture. They're supposed to signify, yes, as you, as you were just saying, you know, replacing nutrients in soils, improving biodiversity. And look, when you, when you compare different systems of agriculture, they're, they're right in the sense of grazing animals compared to factory farming does increase biodiversity and, and does increase, you know, increase carbon sequestration, you know, absorbing carbon from the atmosphere and, and increasing organic matter in the soils. But that's compared to factory farming. And this is where it becomes a little bit of a red herring. Just because this system may have environmental benefits compared to factory farming doesn't mean that it, it achieves the maximization of those benefits. What I mean by that is, if we take regenerative agriculture and we compare it to rewilding, it's night and day. Whilst you can see biodiversity gains from grazing cattle in certain ways, 
the biodiversity of areas of untouched, unmanaged land is obviously going to be higher. If you compare forests or wildflower meadows to cattle grazing pastures, you're obviously going to see more biodiversity. And, and that's just a quantifiable fact, which has been shown. Uh, there was a study in Scotland, I believe it was, which took areas of land and did different things with those areas of land. And the land that was unmanaged and wasn't grazed on had higher biodiversity. So the biodiversity gains seen with grazing animals is, is small in comparison to the biodiversity gains of reclaiming that land. And the good thing about switching to a plant-based diet is that globally we could free up about 75% of agricultural land. And that's by feeding everyone on a plant-based diet. So not only can everyone be fed, but we can reduce agricultural land. So again, if our main focus is improving biodiversity, well, firstly, let's stop fishing the oceans. And secondly, let's stop farming the lands of animals and give that land back to nature to improve biodiversity. The next thing is carbon sequestration. So the idea is that by grazing animals, we can create uh, deeper roots and create growth of grasses in the soils, which create um, and the absorption of carbon through the process of photosynthesis. And then because animals defecate, they again replace nutrients back into the soil. And it's this kind of wonderful cycle, so to speak. Well, firstly, there's no meta-analyses that support the claim that grazing animals creates a, reduction, a significant reduction in carbon levels in the atmosphere. What the meta-analyses tend to show is that even at best, if you take very generous assumptions, you can only offset about 20 to 60% of the emissions produced by the animals in the first place. So what that means is these animals are still net contributors to the climate problem. And that's if you take very generous assumptions. You know, if, if you take like these kind of almost unrealistic assumptions, they're still net contributors to the, envir to the environmental problem of, of emissions production. It's a bit different to what you sometimes see on social media. Oh, wildly different. Because what there was a study done in New Zealand, and this study was was funded by the meat industry. Oh, and, and it showed this miraculous thing that the grazing of these animals actually created a, a you know a net positive. It absorbed more emis emissions than were produced by the animals. But then they'd taken very generous assumptions, and the New Zealand government actually said this report is nonsense. You know, the the, the environmental department of the government said this isn't true and it was funded by the meat industry so any examples that you see well they're funded by the meat industry and they're not based on like you know objective science and and even if you get past that let's go for it and say that grazing animals it means that more carbon is sequestered than you know the equivalent emissions which are produced from the animals brilliant sounds good except that there is only a specific amount of carbon that can be sequestered in soils they have a limit because they're not just these endless carbon sinks. Of course, they're finite. So at a certain point, what you reach is something called carbon equilibrium, which is where the amount of carbon that can be sequestered is matched by the carbon that's released. In other words, there's no there's no gains anymore. But the cows still... They're still there. The cows still emitting. Exactly. So at a certain point, even if it was true, which it isn't, but even if it was, it's not a long-term strategy because eventually you're faced with two options. You either have to move the animals onto more land, so that's more land for agriculture, or you have to stop the farming. But, so why not stop the farming now and maximize the amount? Because if we, if we consider that soils have a certain limit for the amount of carbon they can absorb, why would we limit the amount of carbon that we can absorb by grazing animals? Because we have to offset their emissions. If we take out the animals from the equation, we can maximize the, the emissions gains of the sequestration into the soil. But otherwise, we're having to offset the emissions produced by the animals in the first place. Yeah, I think that's a, a, uh, an important concept to, for, for people to, to sit with. You know, the idea should be to saturate that soil with carbon while emitting as few 
carbon emissions along the along the way. Absolutely right. Absolutely. And one of the things that people say is it's kind of recreating what happens in the wild, you know, with these kind of you know roaming herbivorous grazing animals, which is the kind of basic idea behind holistic management is kind of like mimicking the natural world. But the problem with that is there's something called the metabolic cycle. So what happens in the wild is animals who graze, when they die, their bodies kind of absorbed back into the soil and, and kind of it's this closed metabolic cycle, right? Where the animal is integrated back into the environment. But what we have is called an open metabolic cycle where the animal takes from the soil. So they're taking nutrients through consuming. Now those nutrients are going to be turned into things like bones and muscles, and they're going to be breathed out and of course, you know, expelled in other ways as well, which means that we're taking nutrients from the soil, but they're not being replaced completely. So when the animal is taken off the soil to be killed at around 24 months or 18 months or so, they're removing those nutrients from, from that land. And we're then consuming them and releasing them through the ways that we do through consuming them, turning them into our energy and such. So we're creating open metabolic cycles where the animals aren't closing the loop. And so we're not recreating what happens in the wild because we're removing these animals from those environments and then transporting them in different ways. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. So if you truly wanted to mimic, let's say for argument's sake, that pretend that the carbon side of things was a, was a great story and, and the numbers did stack up for a moment here, then you would want to leave those animals on the land and their biomass, they would live out their life, die naturally, and their biomass would stay on the land. That's not so convenient for for beef industry, though. No, no, not so not so convenient, is it? So it just doesn't hold up. But it's it's a nice concept, and the problem is it gives you know environmentalists it gives them a reason to eat meat because they're sold this idea of something that scientifically is bogus, um, and ultimately is contributing to the problem in many ways. And, and just to bring it back to the first thing I said about there being a, a difference between this regenerative system and factory farming. That, that is true, but ultimately, factory farming is very efficient. It uses less land, you know. So actually, it depends how you compare the two because there are obviously environmental benefits to grazing animals, but there are environmental benefits to factory farming compared to grazing, which is just... So none of those systems are perfect. And so you can pick and choose and say, this one's more sustainable because of this and this one's more sustainable because of that. But ultimately, the most sustainable is neither. It's removing the animals from the equation and just, you know, farming plants... And again, we need to farm plants in better ways. You know, we can do no-till agriculture, we can do regenerative forms of plant-based agriculture. But even with this monocropping system that we have now, even with this really, you know, bad system of plant-based agriculture, which we'll improve into the future, even this bad version is still better than their good version of animal farming. And that says a lot, really. Yeah, that was my next question. I think sometimes when listening to this sort of information, you know, people may intuitively think, well, you know, look at soy, look at the damage that soy is causing in the Amazon. This doesn't quite stack up. How can a, a plant-based diet, particularly with soy in it, be good for the environment? 
the soy thing is it's a frustrating fallacy, um, but it's one that vegans hear all the time. But the problem with soy production isn't because of vegans, it's because of animals. If you look at the Amazon in particular, it's reported that 96% of the Amazon produced in the Amazon region is either turned into animal feed or into soybean oil. Most of it's, when you look at the, how, if you take a soybean and you, and you kind of separate the meal and the oil, it's two thirds meal and one third oil. So by and large, the vast majority of the soy that's produced in the Amazon is used for animal feed directly. So there's a big problem where we have this, mis, this kind of misconception that vegans are destroying the Amazon through consuming soy milk and tofu, but actually by and large, it's the dairy and the chickens and the pigs that we consume, that those are the biggest destroyers of the Amazon rainforest when it comes to soy production. Because the soy that's been raised there is has been grown there is used for them. And obviously it's all GM there as well. And when you look at some of the GM labeling, especially in the EU, it's not it's not found in these vegan products. A lot of these vegan products say they're non-GMO. And if you if you look at the non-GMO label, then you you see it, then you know it's not from the Amazon. And just look at the plant-based companies, look at Alpro, look at Provamel. You know, look at these plant-based brands and look at where they source their soy from. They're sourcing from Europe, they're sourcing from North America, they're sourcing from Japan and maybe some parts of Asia, but they're not sourcing from South America because the soy produced there is almost exclusively for animals. Um, but there are issues with plant-based agriculture. We shouldn't, we shouldn't kind of beat around the bush about that. You know, monocropping does have a, an impact. There are systems of, of plant-based farming that are not the most preferable systems of farming in general. But the problems with animal with plant farming, excuse me, don't justify animal farming. Just because plant farming is imperfect doesn't then mean that the animal farming is, is a good alternative because it's not. All it means is that, okay, we have to make improvements here. And we can do that in a multitude of ways by reducing fertilizer uses, by you know going for vertical farms, you know, all these different systems of plant farming that can make plant farming more environmentally sustainable. But the fact that it's not perfect now doesn't justify raising animals and killing them needlessly, which is immoral and even more sustainable, you know, even more damaging from a sustainability perspective. How do you feel about someone who has, let's say, adopted a vegan diet and then for whatever reason, they've added animal products back in. And this often gets quite a lot of attention on social media and, of course, mainstream media uh, who, who loves to, to pick on veganism whenever they can, um, often written by journalists that are not vegan. I'm curious as to, let's say, someone feels like they were struggling with a vegan diet and uh, often we hear things like, genetic uh, differences or microbiome differences or a whole host of, of things. In that situation, does their moral baseline change? Well, not in the situations that I've seen play out so far. I think a lot of the the kind of more high profile people who stopped being vegan and got a fair bit of attention on social media, a lot of them seem to consume raw diets, which I don't think are necessarily the best. And um and we're doing some things that we, we'd consider to be questionable in other, in other ways. So a lot of these people I don't hold up as being particularly good spokespeople for healthy diets to begin with. But, but secondly, there's also this kind of refusal, I think, to exhaust all avenues. What I mean by that is people don't often get blood tests. You know, so we don't know what's wrong. You know, if it's just something like you had low B12 or low iron or low calcium, whatever it might be, well, that's very easily 
changed. You know, just focus on consuming more, take a supplement that, you know, boosts your levels. If you have low vitamin D, it's not the fault of veganism and it's, it's the fault of the diet that you're choosing to have and not supplementing appropriately with, with those nutrients if you need to. So I think there's sometimes a lack of accountability and responsibility on the individual to take ownership of their own health. And instead they may feel like they've got a bit of brain fog or they may feel a bit lethargic or tired and then instantly blame it on veganism. And it's very easy to do that. Before you're vegan, when you get ill, you don't go, oh, it's because I've been eating meat. You don't think that. If you really think, oh, I must have a virus or a bug or maybe you know something that's going around at the moment. But if you get ill as a vegan, you instantly go, oh, maybe it's because I'm vegan. Because there's this kind of like societal doubt that plays in everyone's heads. So I think that, that that can definitely play a part where people can become obsessed with this idea of, I don't feel well. And it becomes quite psychological. Some of these people that stop being vegan, they say, oh, I had a piece of salmon or I had a piece of something and I felt instantly better. Well, that's not true. It's a psychological thing. You know, if, if you did feel anything, it's not a tangible change in your body based on you consuming one piece of meat at that time. It's, it's purely psychological. And I think that people sometimes underestimate the power of the mind in creating a perception of something that maybe isn't true. So I think, you know, Blood tests are important. Um, and when you look at the science, well, we know that you can get everything you need to be healthy. You know, we, we know that that's true on a plant-based diet. So by and large, if there's something wrong with you, it's probably something that can be easily remedied. Now, I don't know about all diseases. There may be some abstract autoimmune disease or something that prohibits that. I, I don't know, and I'm not, I'm not aware of that, so I couldn't speak to the validity of that as an argument. But by and large, I think most people are just not tracking their calories, tracking their nutrients. And if they do feel unwell or they feel that something's wrong, they jump to a conclusion too quickly about taking the necessary medical steps to try and isolate what the problem is. Mm. It doesn't help when you have, often in that position, everyone around that person will be telling them it's the diet. Oh, everyone. Puts a lot of pressure. And there is, you know, I think for a lot of outspoken vegans, there is this kind of heightened expectation of them, you know, being a certain way. And, you know, if there is any point of doubt in someone's mind and they go, well, you know, if I post about this, you know, I'm going to get a lot more views and people will validate that. And people tell me that I'm right for not being vegan anymore. And, you know, in the case of some people, they get some mainstream media attention around it. There's constant validation there. And that validation, again, complains that psychological aspect of convincing yourself of something that potentially isn't true. How about religion? If God didn't want us to eat them, he wouldn't have put them here. Religion is the hardest because you're having to get through two forms of conditioning. Firstly, the societal conditioning that's normalized to animal product consumption, which is what everyone has. But then secondly, the conditioning of, being, of believing that there is a deity in the sky that has granted you the right to do this. It's really hard to get through to people in that scenario because as someone who's talking to them, they go, well, God says I can do it. There's nothing in the Bible or in the Quran or in the Torah that says that I shouldn't explicitly do this. So if it's not saying that I shouldn't do it, then why would I care about your opinion? Because I've been told by this deity that I can. That's really dangerous and it's really hard to get through to people. I think the primary thing to convince people of is that God doesn't require you to eat animals to you know, go to heaven or go to the afterlife. You know, your um, eternal... Uh, bliss and your eternal kind of freedom in the afterlife isn't predicated on you harming animals in this life. So even if God is neutral, you know, and let's say, you know, God is neutral on whether or not we harm animals. When, let's deal with the, the here and now, right? You know, because if we don't need it to get to heaven, we don't need it to get to the afterlife, then well, why would we cause unnecessary suffering now? And I always think, well, why would God have granted these animals the capacity to feel if he didn't, if he was then happy of us causing so much suffering? You know, God is... You know, 
by most people's interpretations, a benevolent person. You know, ask any religious person, is your God benevolent? Oh, he's the most benevolent and just person or being that's ever existed, of course. So why would a benevolent or just or compassionate deity be happy of us so arbitrarily causing suffering to animals who he's created? That seems like a contradiction to compassion and benevolence. And also secondly, because we've selectively bred these animals, these aren't even God's creatures any, you know, creations anymore. We've taken his creations and we have manipulated them for our own selfish benefit because we want to make more money or we want more meat from their bodies. And that's actually blasphemous when you think about it, because what we're doing is we're saying that God is imperfect, which is a blasphemous thing to, to say, because God is of course perfect. He doesn't make mistakes, but we're saying that God is imperfect because we have to change his animals to suit our needs. He didn't do a good enough job. He didn't make the chickens grow fast enough or the cows to produce enough milk. So we've had to step in and play God to alter the animals who he's created and then create these, these creatures that were not natural to begin with and weren't created by God to begin with. They're human creations in that sense. And I don't think a God would be happy with us kind of insulting his work in that way, especially as he is benevolent and presumably would want us to reduce suffering if we can. How about sentience? We haven't really defined that, but perhaps we could do that here. But are there certain animals that are less sentient and therefore it would be more ethical to eat them? That's the first part of that question. And what about uh, animals like oysters and mussels where there's debate around sentience? I think, well, we assign moral worth based on sentience, or at least, you know, by and large, that seems to be a good way of doing it. So if we were to make the argument that some animals are less sentient, and of course, some animals are less sentient than other, that's just a fact, that would mean that and you use the words more ethical, that would make killing them more ethical than killing someone, you know, an animal who is more sentient. But the the important thing about that phrasing is more ethical, not objectively ethical. People often say to me, well, it's more humane to do this. And I say, but is it humane? Like, is it just objectively humane? And so whilst you could make the argument that killing a, uh, let's say a, a prawn or a shrimp is more ethical than, than cutting the throat of a cow, in the absence of necessity, Cut, you know, killing the shrimp or the prawn is still not justified because we don't have to. So if we're in a burning building, for example, and we can save the life of a human or the life of a chicken, you know, you could justify saving the life of a human based on the sentience of the human, based on the impact that their death would have on others around them in their life. So you could justify saving the human over the chicken if you had to choose. But we could use the same argument with, with humans. If you had to save a five-year-old child or a 95-year-old human, you would probably find the justifications to save the five-year-old child. You know, they haven't lived their full life, you know, the impact that will have on their parents. So you would probably save the child. But that doesn't justify arbitrarily harming the elderly in society. You know, the elderly should still be looked after, should still be cared for, even if in an, in an extreme scenario, we would save the life of the child over the elderly person. The same is true of, of humans and non-humans. Even if we would prioritize the human over the non-human in a situation where we had to, we don't have to choose one or the other, we can choose neither. So whilst we may say that some animals are more ethical to kill than others, in the absence of necessity, killing neither is still the most ethical thing we can choose. When it comes to oysters and mussels, you said there's a debate around that. And I think that's the important thing to, to note. There is a debate. I can't, I can't really tell you that mussels and oysters are sentient and have capacities in the ways that we understand necessarily. But what I think is interesting about this discussion is that the, the species that they belong to, or 
I guess this, I guess it's called genera or genera, like the collection of species they belong to, also includes things like squids and octopuses, animals who we recognize as being highly intelligent and highly sentient. In fact, the UK government just put into a bill that these animals are sentient and they included shrimps and prawns in that as well. So we're really coming down the, the animal scale here. So whilst we can't categorically say that mussels and oysters are, what we can say by looking at their ganglia, which is basically a collection of nerves, it's a very uh, kind of basic nervous system, if you like, is that they have the capacity to be more sentient than the plants we consume. So in the absence of necessity, whilst we would say eating mussels and oysters would be preferable to eating other animals, because we don't have to, I think let's say while the debate is still happening, let's stick to plants for the time being, because it would be terrible if we found out, well, actually they do have capacities and they can experience um, because when we've just arbitrarily harmed them for no reason. So sticking to plants is still the best option in that scenario. And maybe hopefully one day we'll have more clarity about what those two species can actually perceive around them or what they can experience. Um, but you know, our, our, our knowledge of animals is always evolving and changing. And if we're starting to look at, you know, shrimps and prawns as being sentient, you know, well, there's no reason why we couldn't go down a little bit further. You know, people might say, well, what if we find out plants are sentient? But based on what we have now and the knowledge that we have, they're still the, less, the least sentient. Or mushrooms. Or mushrooms, exactly. Uh, I want to play a clip. This is from a Joe Rogan episode. And uh, he was having a conversation with Peter Atia, who's a, an MD. And they were talking about hunting venison in, in Hawaii. And I, I want to get your thoughts on it. I've never been hunting on Maui. You got to come, man. Yeah. I, it's, I think it's 10 times better than Lanai. Really? Oh, yeah. Why? The terrain. You're up, oh. you're up on the volcano, and the bucks are huge. Like, there are lots of 30-inch bucks out there. Oh, wow. Well, the, the density in Lanai is almost like a problem. Right. It's like too many eyes on you. It's just too weird. It's also too weird. It's like, what do you, like, I kind of feel like you could just close your eyes and draw back and launch <laughs> into the sky, and you might hit something. <laughs> You know, I mean, there's so many deer out there. For people who don't know what Lanai is, it's a very small island in the Hawaiian Islands chain, and it has 30,000 deer on it, which is so crazy to say. And, and Molokai has 70,000. <laughs> what? It's crazy. That's insane. Yeah, and, and Maui has the most, I believe, but obviously it's a bigger island. Oh, what, what the Axis deer are doing in Hawaii is, is brutal for yeah, Hawaii. It's, it's crazy. Just, killing that state and what can they do other than hire people to, to shoot them i mean at this point you know jake muse my friend who runs that company out there that's they have a usda grade commercial program for making access deer and they're about as efficient as they get he does not think they're they're not even going to be able to flatten the population curve till 2030 whoa so they carried on in that conversation and the point that they were making was that this is ethical because the deer are overpopulated. So I wanted to know what your thoughts are on overpopulation of certain wild animals and how you feel about that being considered an ethical practice. Well, I think just broadly, the first thing to, to identify is that we couldn't all sustain ourselves in this manner anyway. So We'll talk about the kind of like the the more nuances of of that in just a moment. But just broadly speaking, even if, even if we were to identify that this is an ethical thing to do or or a, a sustainable thing to do for those individuals doing it right now, 
Even if we were to identify that it is sustainable or ethical to do that, the problem that we find is that not everyone could feed themselves in that way. So even if we find that this is a preferable thing to the system that we have now, you know, there might be 30,000 deer on the island or whatever he was saying. And there might be, I think in the US, there's 30 million deer in general, but there's 350 million humans. So very quickly, that would become a, a devastating thing if we all stopped eating animals and decided that hunting was the preferable choice. We would eradicate that species very quickly. And history has shown that when we hunt, we do eradicate species. I mean, when we started colonizing the world, we wiped out, you know, many species of megafauna, you know, all these large animals. When we started colonizing Australia and, uh, and the Americas, back when humans first settled in these places, we began to meticulously wipe out all these species of animals because we hunted them to extinction. So hunting isn't a solution to the problem. It may well be that you could say that as an individual, it's more sustainable because hunting one deer doesn't have a broader impact. But as soon as millions of people are doing that, it has a huge impact on, on the world. So the first thing to identify is that even if these two come to that conclusion, they're not advocating that everyone do that because everyone can't. So even if we identify that there is a small group of people who can sustainably hunt, and then we'll talk about the ethics in a minute, but sustainably hunt, that's not a solution to the world's problems. You know, plant-based food system is still the solution in that sense. Anyway, so... Just to get past that, now we talk about this kind of like more nuanced discussion. Now, there is an overpopulation issue of deer in, in certain areas of the world. America has, has it in a few different places. And we have to first identify why that is the case. You know, why is it that we have this problem to begin with? Because food chains in nature exist to kind of create some sort of harmony. Unless there's this huge, you know, problem that comes about in nature, by and large, these species are kind of constantly competing and, and, and trying to work out some sort of system of relative harmony, if you like. So when we have the situation where there is such a significant problem of overpopulation, we have to say, well, how has that happened? Something's out of balance. Something's out of balance. Where's the predators gone? Where Exactly, <laughs> because we've got all these herbivorous animals, but there's no one on no species that are keeping their population in check. And so we go, well, where have they gone? And well, they've been hunted to extinction in many areas, but also they've been hunted now to protect the interests of animal farmers because, you know, a predator isn't just going to kill the deer that they come across. They're also going to kill the, the lambs they come across. They're also going to kill, the, kill the, the calves that they come across when they're smaller and babies. So farmers have a, a huge problem on their hands, which is that these animals can directly impact the finances, you know, of their industry, their profits. Now, there is a, an organization who are called Wildlife Services in the U.S., and it's a offshoot of the USDA. So it's a taxpayer-funded organization called Wildlife Services. And their job is to basically kill wild animals to protect the interests of farmers. That's why it exists. So they use um, different types of uh, explosive devices, but they also hunt these animals to kill them. So we're saying, oh, this is a big problem. We've got this overpopulation. Well, we have to fix the problem to try and you know, create the solution. Because at the moment, by killing these animals ourselves, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a cut artery. You know, it's, it's not going to work. You know, we need to think of a long-term solution. So the first thing we can do is stop hunting the, the predators, so stop killing them. Um, and then what we need to do is dismantle animal farming. The problem is, not only have we got rid of the predators, but what we've done is we've taken over this land. So like 41% or something of, of the land in, in the US is used just for animal farming. So over two-fifths of land is just for animal farming. So that's land that these animals no longer have access to. To put it into perspective, only 4% of land in the US is used to grow food directly for humans, you know, plants directly for humans. So 10 times more for animal farming than for plant farming. Anyway, so we've not only have we destroyed their natural predators and, you know, killed 
and wiped out species of them, but we've also at the same time taken away land from these animals. So now they're being confined in smaller spaces with no animals keeping them in check, their population sizes. So of course we're going to have an overpopulation issue. So if we want to create a long-term change to benefit that, then the first thing to do is stop hunting. The second thing is to, to do is take away the farmland, return it to nature where we can, that increase, increases space, increases biodiversity. And then we could talk about potentially reintroducing certain species. Now, alternatively, we could look at contraception, but it's a tricky one. Contraception on a mass scale is, is a hard one. Um, but in smaller areas, like suburban areas where deer overpopulate, you could probably make a good case for contraception. It's just when you're in larger expanses, that becomes harder, harder to regulate. So in the case of what they're discussing, it becomes very tricky because they're justifying their desire for hunting by saying that it's coming from this almost ethical position that they care about these deer. I've, I've seen videos of Joe Rogan hunting um, and he shows no care for these deer in the moment. I saw this video of him using a crossbow, I think it was, to, to kill this deer, this big buck. And he was in no way expressing empathy or sympathy for doing so. And I think if a hunter was out there hunting because they were like, you know, this is something I have to do because they're overpopulated and this is damaging for them and it's hard for them. Well, firstly, they would choose the weak animals, but they don't. They choose the big, strong bucks because they can present their antlers for pictures and it looks impressive. And secondly, they feel no remorse for doing so. And I think that if it was this truly moral decision they were making, they would at least feel some remorse. They'd at least be saying, well, I have to do this rather than being proud of doing it. So I think there is a, it's a, it's a convenient excuse that they're using, but it also doesn't actually get to the root of the problem. It's just the band-aid on the artery. So we have to think about real-term solutions because we can't act as the predator for all these animals. We can't create healthy population sizes through doing that on our own. We need to create a system change to try and hark back to what it used to be when these population sizes were more balanced than they are now, which we're not going to get with a bow and arrow. I had to laugh at the end of of that part of the conversation. This is this is how it uh, sort of played out. Uh, in the morning, it's hard for me to, to get everything in, all the stuff that I do and work out. And I'm pretty religious about my sauna and cold plunge. So I'm, I'm doing, I have to allocate 40 yep. minutes to that between my workouts and everything. And I'm getting up at seven in the morning and then I'm out here doing the podcast. I got to get everything in. So I, w- I want a meal that I can just pull out of the fridge yeah. and I in 10 minutes, I'm done. Sit down eat it, take my vitamins, go. Funny because vegans are often given a bit of stick for taking vitamins. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, his, uh, his choice of medication has been particularly interesting in the recent times, hasn't it? But he has a supplement, I think, called Alpha Brain or something. So he, the, the, he sells supplements. Mm-hmm. And so many of these people do sell supplements, ironically. Yeah, I mean, one thing I can say about Joe is I, I like his stance against factory farming, or at least he, he talks about that. Um, but I do find the, the part about hunting interesting. And he does still support these systems. You know, he's not just eating hunted elk. You know, he's, he goes to restaurants, he buys these foods, and he probably supports factory farming constantly through his purchases. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think for a second that he doesn't, but you know, obviously it's good that he talks about it and says it is wrong and it is messed up. That's important. Um, but then he's giving people a solution that isn't accessible for most people. I mean, people say veganism is elitist and inaccessible, but then we're being told, well, the ethical thing is to go to this island in Hawaii and and spend a weekend shooting deer. And it's like, okay, brilliant. Maybe veganism is the most accessible thing in this scenario, you know? One final question is, I'm interested in in your overall mission. Is it is it more vegans in the world or is is it less pain and suffering? And when you think about that, does that mean more people eating more plants and less animal foods or fewer people adopting a perfect vegan diet? 
I, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in reducing suffering. And the best way to do that from a diet perspective is veganism. Um, so it's kind of one of the same thing, but it ultimately it's a pursuit of trying to reduce suffering. So whilst I am hyper aware that many people won't become this like, you know, vegan, you know, they may just incorporate plants into their diet. I always think it's really important to emphasize that if the reduction of suffering is the most important thing, then we have to view our actions from that of the individual who's suffering. So I always, I always say to people, look, you know, you you make your own decisions. I can't I can't tell you how you should or shouldn't live. Well, I can tell you what I perceive you know you should do, but ultimately I can't influence you to do something that you don't want to do. So when we view it, you know, as an individual choice, but we view our individual choices as having impacts on other individuals, I think it becomes obvious then that being vegan is is the minimum in this scenario. So I, I think yeah, reducing suffering, but the consequence of that is being vegan if we want to do it to the fullest extent we can with the choices that we have. We're running out of time here, but I did have a lot more that I wanted to to discuss with you, no doubt covered extensively in your new book, you know, how to have some of these conversations with family members, particularly coming into the, the holiday season. That can be rather tricky sometimes. Uh, I also wanted to chat to you about Unity and, and No Catch Co Project and Surge Sanctuary. So maybe we can work out a date in the future and do a round two at some stage. Let's do it. I'd like that. I mean, there's so much we can talk about and there's so many interesting issues and they require like, you know, a little bit of deep insight often. So it's easy to to talk and talk and talk because it's an interesting conversation to have, but let's do a part two for sure. I'd like that very much. Before we close this one out, was there anything that you feel we missed or any kind of parting words? I don't think we've missed much. I mean, we've spoken about such a broad range of of topics and ideas, which is great because often I don't get to do that. So it's been really nice. Um, so thank you for the good, you know, the really good questions. Just parting words. I think it's just, I think as we move into the next year, you know, when we're getting to twenty twenty two, and you know, we progress through these things, it's really important that we recognise that there is a, a kind of a responsibility to keep pushing things forward, isn't there? You know, we can become quite, uh, I suppose complacent in, in the way the things are and also apathetic because the world needs to change so dramatically but, but at the same time change feels so slow but I think we have to empower ourselves to recognize that you know as individuals we can bring about significant changes and we can empower ourselves to be more informed to be more you know reflective to be more critical of our choices and push ourselves to to do more in the way of creating hopefully more beneficial change so I think it's just about education and those are the what I always try and say, you know, at the end of these these podcasts and when I'm talking to people, it's always about just recognizing that there's a responsibility to just take the time to learn about these complex issues because it's, you know, literally a matter of life and death when we view the the scale of the problem, you know. So it's an important thing to do. But we've we've covered a lot. So hopefully that that's helped. This is vegan propaganda on shelves soon. Sixth of January in the UK and the sixth of April in the US. Okay, cool. I'll I'll put the links to that into the show notes. And if folks would like to connect with you, what's the best place to go? Yeah, social media, Instagram, YouTube, especially Facebook. And you got a podcast? I do. I do. Yes, it's called the Disclosure Podcast, which I'm going to be bringing back hopefully soon. So just search Earthling Ed on all socials. Pretty much. Cool. All right, man. Let's do it again. Thank you very much, Simon. There we go. I hope you found that interesting, instructive, illuminating, and clarifying. Of course, if you did, please share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, 
make sure that we're connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. Quick one before I let you go. I am often asked what supplements I take. Probably one of the most common questions that I get actually. So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. Inside, it contains information about daily supplements for everyday wellness, along with performance supplements. The daily supplement that I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essential 8 by NutriKind. This is a product I formulated for NutriKind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron. The right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutraKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com. And use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off your purchase. So in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at PLANTPROOF.com. And if you are in the market for a daily multi-nutrient to cover your bases, head to NutraKind.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off. On that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.